0: Well, Father, I thank you just for this opportunity to minister to my church family. I pray that the teaching of your word will help us to understand the miracle of this family, embrace this family, lean into this family, and act as a family. Father, as we set the theme for the coming year, I know that there will be many trials and tribulations and lord we thank you for your faithfulness to us in the midst of all that and we thank you for the gift of a family to sustain us through them as well i pray that all of us will walk away with a deeper commitment to regard the horizontal horizontal relationships in our lives as as sacred bonds that should be strengthened convict those who need to hear it comfort those who need to hear it and i pray that you'll just speak to us through your word in christ's name amen well, a couple of weeks ago, when I was luxuriating in warm California, I was having coffee outside with a friend of mine, and we were just kind of talking shop and talking about his church, and he explained to me that after the pandemic, he noticed that his church is actually a different church. They had a masking policy, or in this case, a non-masking policy that repelled a lot of longtime members. ...who left to go to other churches, <clears throat> but it also drew a lot of people to their church. And so it's full of new people, but very different because of the church transfers. A lot of my brother pastors in, in especially the Kansas City area uh, stayed open during the pandemic... ...and they saw their churches almost explode in numbers... But they noticed an interesting phenomenon. Now, when these new people who came went through the membership class, half of them would join, and then half of them, when they found out what they believed, would leave and try to find another church. And as I thought about this, um, church transferring is not necessarily wrong. Right Switching churches is not is not sinful. when somebody joins a church, it's not like they make this solid sacred covenant never to be broken. But there are some drawbacks and it raises, I think, some pastoral concerns. Now, obviously, when you switch churches for a residential move, everybody understands that. There's even good reasons for switching churches in town. Uh, we've received people from other churches. We've sent people to other churches because we just understand that that certain circumstances mean that they are better suited for worshiping God in a different spiritual family. But most of the time when people switch churches, it, it's um, it, it's often done because they don't Want to work things out, and they think it's easier to to leave and start over because of certain changes in the church. In fact, there was a study done by Lifeway Research, a large Baptist organization, where they surveyed a thousand people who who switched churches for non-residential moving reasons. Okay, and this is what they found: twenty-nine percent changed churches because something changed about the church they did not like. 29% 29% changed because the church was not fulfilling their, their needs. 27% changed because they became disenchanted with the pastor. And then 13% changed because of COVID and COVID policy. Now I want you to finish this sentence easy come, easy go. And this is my pastoral concern with people who switch churches really easily. Uh, For those of you who have engaged with the foster system, you might have heard of something called reactive attachment disorder. You guys ever heard that term, RAD for short? And basically what it it speaks of is when a young child goes from one home to another home to another home to another home... Each successive move makes it more difficult for them to attach or form a a deep emotional bond with the new family. And so many of these kids just don't feel attached anymore. It's, it's, It's almost as if they're afraid to trust new leadership, new family. And so when people get into a habit of, of going from church to church to church to church, and they're switching churches continually, it becomes very difficult for them to truly enjoy the benefits that God intends to be a part of a, of a spiritual family. And this is often very reflective of, of how people in our culture view church. If you look at the United States, we are a very strong um individualistic culture where we make decisions in light of what's best for me. What do I get out of it? Right? I, I want to go to church because this is a place where I will be challenged. It is a place where I will get my spiritual needs met. This is a place where I will grow. And it's almost like the church is some utility that God has given you to help you in your personal relationship with the Lord. But lost from that is an idea of family obligation, right? And many of you might have traveled over the holidays, and why did you go through the expense of traveling, the inconvenience of traveling? Because you needed to see your family, right? There's a sense of obligation. And when you look at how we are to regard the church, the church is not some sort of utilitarian aid to help you in your personal wa- relationship with the Lord. There is a deeper meaning to this, that the church is to be regarded as a family. In fact, turn with me to our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this, incidentally, is the theme of our Iron Men Summit. Uh, it's the, the theme that we're going to be talking about in the men's ministry. But as I thought about it, it should be the theme for the entire year. Do you see the church as, as family? Is this the church you attend or your church? When we use terms like brothers and sisters, does that really resonate with you with how you look at the other people in this room? And this is rooted in 1st Timothy 3:14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, in 1st Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, his protégé, who has been sent to the Ephesian church to restore peace and order. Some false teachers infiltrated it. And whenever there's false teaching, there's disorder. People don't understand their rightful place, how they relate to doctrine, how they relate to each other. And so he resets the stage. He, He puts people in place. He calls them to pray, right? When you pray... You order yourself under God's divine authority. He calls them to submit to government authorities, right? You place yourself under their leadership. He establishes spiritual authority, or at least he reestablishes it. You are to submit to qualified men to lead the church. You are to be under their authority. And the, the whole purpose of this is when the church is in right order, they can continue on their mission to take the gospel to all the nations, So here, the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, right? We stand underneath this glorious gospel to present it to the entire world, but to do that, we need to be functional. You know, it's really interesting when churches go through church splits and there's infighting, what often stops? Evangelism. Reaching the lost, right? So having a functional family, Understanding your role in the household of God when that is established was built as a community that is a pillar and buttress of the church. Now, when you look at our church, we like to say we have a high view of God, right? We come to God on His terms, not our own. And when you have a high view of God, you want to hear what He says because you want to do what He says until you have a high view of Scripture. But one of the questions is do we have a, do you, right, do you have a high view of the church? Now, as good Protestants, we have been told that salvation is not mediated through the church, right? You don't want to have too high of a church, right? You look to Jesus, you don't look to the church to mediate your relationship with the Lord. That's why, they don't call me a priest, right? I'm not the one who mediates your relationship with the Lord. Jesus, your perfect high priest, does that. So sometimes you can take that thought and say, all I need is Jesus. You look at that notion coupled with the fact that there are so many church scandals, right? People love those headlines. This pastor fell from grace. This pastor got caught stealing money. This pastor is guilty of spiritual abuse. This pastor committed an affair. And you think, how can I trust any of them? So I'll just keep my relationship between me and the Lord. And you can say with a straight face, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And so the church can often be a a punching bag. Right, and obviously we can't compete with Jesus because Jesus is perfect and we're not. But is there a place? So numberless evangelicals, they they have kind of substituted the, the church for online services. Kind of this a la carte Christianity where I listen to this pastor and read these books and and I meet with my friends on Sunday morning and that is our household of God. But what's missing is the miracle of the church. Like when you became a Christian, some amazing things happened to you, right? You became right with God. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. You became part of a spiritual family and not just a spiritual family, but a local family. Like when Paul talks about the church being the household of God, obviously there is a universal church, right? Brothers and sisters in every location all around the world. We're all part of that. But he's telling Timothy that you need to learn how to conduct yourself in the household of God in Ephesus, the local church. God not only wants you to be right in your vertical relationship with him, but your horizontal relationship with his bride. And the paradigm that Paul gives us in this passage is you are to see the church as family. Not just a spiritual family, which we are, but as family. Now, this has some really strong implications. Uh, For some of you, this will be very challenging because you go to church, but you don't see this as your family. For some of you, you might think, well, this kind of sounds like I just joined a cult. So I want you to be patient with me as I break this down, okay? And this is what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about what is the Bible's vision for the church, followed by what holds you back from that vision and how can you implement this vision. And the purpose is, is to really give you a deep appreciation and a desire to see people in this room as your family. So we'll look at the first point. What does it look like or what does it mean for the church to be family? Now, in, in, in Scripture, there's a number Uh, of metaphors for the church, right? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the bride of of Christ. But here, he speaks about the church as family. Now, to understand the church as a household or the church as family, I think it's important that we kind of go back in time 2,000 years ago to a, a different culture in a different place where they had a different understanding of family. Now, we live in a very weak group culture where the needs of the group are not as important as the needs of the individual. Back then, they lived in a very strong group culture where the needs of the group overwhelmed and were more important than the needs of the individual. And so when you look at our needs and how we shape our identity, they usually revolve around three questions, right? The first one is, what am I going to do with my life? Right? When you're in a conversation with somebody, you meet somebody, what do you ask them? What do you do? I'm a pastor. Then you ask, who am I going to spend my life with? Right? Who, who am I going to marry? Right? That's one of the pressing questions. I'm all the single ladies going, yes, Pastor Dave, that is my question. I want to know. <laughs> and then, where am I going to live? Right? What do you do? Who will you marry? Where are you going to live? And in an vigilistic culture right? like ours, We make all those decisions. And incidentally, I nailed it. I nailed it. What am I going to do, where am I going to live, and who am I going to marry? Nailed them all. But in a collectivist culture, those decisions were not made by the individual. They were made by the community. In Israel, where are you going to live? Well, are you from the tribe of Reuben? Well, you will live here. What are you going to do with your life? Are you a Levite? You will be a priest. Is your father a carpenter? You will be a carpenter. Is your dad a a farmer? You will be a farmer, and you will farm here. Who are you going to marry? Well, that is for the community to decide. What you did where you lived, how you saw yourself, your identity was given to you by the community. You see, the, the and what's interesting is your family determined all that. And by family, not just nuclear family. We're talking brothers and sisters. Sing, yeah, if you were if you were married, it would be your father would be the head of the family, and your mother, and you would be under his rule and authority. And so would your single sisters. And when your single sisters got married, there'd always be some dowry in exchange. There was a large multi-level family. That would be part of a clan, which was a larger family. It would be part of a community. And who ran the community? It was the fathers of the clan. And Israel was regarded as a, a family of families. Right? Your community determined all of those connections. And so, if you were to do something crazy, like pick up your cross and follow Jesus and try to break from that family, what do you think would happen? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 10, 34 through 38, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So when you understand how intricate that family was, to leave that community to follow Jesus would mean that you were dead to them. You have betrayed us. You have betrayed this family. And Jesus understands this. He understands to be a follower of Christ, there has to be a willingness to let that Go, And Peter, knowing this cost, asked Jesus the question in Matthew 20, 19, 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. Well, then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a promise to the apostles. And everyone who has left houses, this is for everybody else and the apostles, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Okay, so you will inherit eternal life and separate blessing, will receive hundreds of mothers and fathers and fathers and brothers and sisters you who have left one family will gain another family and that family is further developed as we keep on reading the scriptures when paul says in 1 timothy 3:15 if i delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of god as he's writing this letter, he calls the church a household, a house, the domicile of a family. And this family is populated by spiritual relations. At the beginning of the letter, he says in 1 Timothy 1:2, to Timothy, my true child. I didn't know Paul had children. I thought I thought he was a, a single man and he, he didn't get married. How, how does he have a child? My true child in the faith. He had many children. He saw them come to know the Lord. He saw their spiritual rebirth. They are his children. And talking about the leaders of the church, he says of elders in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Okay, well has to be a good ruler of the household. But why? Because for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See the overlap? The ability to lead a family. Like, you can't fire your kids. Nathan, you've been put on probation for six months. We looked at the review. I'm sorry you can no longer be a member of this family. Uh, I'm going to take applicants for another son. You can't can't do that, right? Family is family, and so you have to learn how to do not by hiring and firing, but by persuading, by encouraging, by confronting, by shepherding. It's a very different approach. And so when it comes to the church of God, we are a household. I can't just fire you. You can't just fire me, right? Right? And then as we keep on going in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Younger women as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Notice fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. And do you ever notice how Paul always addresses the church? They are brethren. Brothers. You are my brother. You are my my sister. Now this is a big deal for the time. You see, in the ancient Near East at this time, whether or not somebody was family was determined by whether or not they had your father's blood. This is known as patrilineal relationships. Okay? So, if you share your father's blood, you are part of that family. That'd mean that you'd have the father, the siblings, and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. They all had to share the father's blood. And this meant that your wife was not considered family because she did not share the same blood. Your mother was not considered family because she did not share your father's blood. The closest relationship that you can have was with your blood kin. Therefore, the siblings were the closest relationship. Men were closer to their sisters than their wives. And this explains one of the more intriguing love lines in the Bible. Do you know what I'm talking about from Song of Solomon? It's repeated four times. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. You guys know that? How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. I've been informed never to use that line again. But why is that even this endearing love line? Because basically, what he's saying is you are as close to me as a sister, you are my closest female relation, my bride. In a day and age where brides were almost disposable, right? If you don't like this bride, just marry another one, right? Or you'd have a concubine. You know what I'm saying? That was a, it was a loose relationship. He's saying, I'm committed to you. You're my closest relationship as a sister. So I'm not saying that this is the way it should be. But this is the way they understood the term. And the emphasis on marriage and and the bride and the husband and wife being the closest relationship as it is today. That's because of the Bible's influence and how the Bible has restored dignity to women and, and shut down sexual immorality and forced the intimacy between, to be between one man and, and one woman for life, right? All of that is why we have such a high esteem for marriage today because of the trajectory that's set in Scripture, but as people understood it at that time to call someone a sister or a brother is basically to say, "You're like family." And here's the interesting part, is that the blood relation is not what ties you together. We have a relation that is forged on more than genetic DNA from your father. Romans 8:15 through17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. So, what unites us together? We're not blood brothers, we're spirit brothers. Flesh and blood will come and go. The Spirit remains forever. 1 Corinthians 12 13. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. What binds us together is the Spirit that dwells in me dwells in you. It doesn't matter if you're born a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're born a Gentile. Your family legacy does not matter. Doesn't matter if you're born into slavery. If you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit, we are family. Right? And, and that's why we see these family obligations, right? After all those people became Christians in, in Acts 2 44 through 46. We read, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts. They're providing for each other like they're a family. Now, this is a unique situation because this is first-generation Christianity. When those people became Christians in that day and age, they were cast away from their family. If you're in financial trouble, you don't come back to us if you follow Jesus as your Messiah. You could not get help from the synagogue because you are cast out of that community because you followed this heretical sect. And so God has created a new family for them. And just like their old family was obligated to take care of each other, this new family was obligated to do the same. The gift was a new household. You are now part of the household of God. Like when you became a Christian, you often think about these great benefits. Like you were justified. God looks at you, no longer sees your sin, you're declared innocent, you're justified before God, you can't, don't have to excuse yourself, you don't have to do any penance, any good works, the blood of Christ is enough, you are justified, not only that, you are sanctified, when God looks at you, you are a saint, he sees you, he sees Jesus, because his righteous works were applied to your account, all of those have changed our vertical relationship. so we have justification and sanctification, but one theologian says we need to talk about familyfication. When you became a Christian, you weren't just justified and sanctified, you were family fied. Instantly, your relationship with other Christians changed. They became part of your spiritual family. They have an obligation to you, they must care for you, shepherd you. And you look at all of the passages that Paul writes to the church, they're not just for individuals, they're for a community like you look at one of the most prevalent passages read at weddings across the world, is 1 Corinthians 13. We'll start in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Now, is that a marriage verse? Man, it's helped a lot of marriages. In my marriage counseling, I use this verse quite a bit. If two people were to apply this, they will have a better marriage. But the larger context, who does this apply to? It applies to the church. The chief application of all these commands is to be expressed in the household of God. We're to honor one another, warn one another, encourage one another. All of those are in the context of the household of God. Do you see it? Church is more than an activity that we do. Church is more than a sports team. It's not Kiwanis. It's a family. There is an obligation that we all have towards one another because when you became a Christian, this relationship changed, but so did this one. So do you regard the church as family? Do you have that kind of commitment? Now, some of you do. When you talk about the church, you don't say they believe or the church believes. You say we believe. You don't say my church hosts the Ironman Summit. You say we host the Ironman Summit. You really see this as your, your family. What happens here is you get your identity from this church. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the family identity, right? But what holds you back from really seeing the church this way? And I'll give you some reasons why not number one you're just not part of the spiritual family you're curious perhaps your parents make you come here you know that right now there's there's a little bit of separation between you and the people of god and for you to cross over you have to become born again When you confess with your mouth Jesus the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. When you go to the cross, broken and contrite, asking for a complete pardon and forgiveness, you believe in the resurrected Lord, turn away from your old life and you pursue him, you become part of the spiritual family. And do you remember when you first became a Christian, especially those who perhaps didn't grow up in a church? You were excited about every Christian that you found. You'd watch some interview after... uh, After a sports game, and you think, I wonder if he's a Christian, and you've been excited about that. Why did you want to know that? I wonder if he's my brother. I wonder if she's my sister, right? There's a natural pull where you want to be with your family. It's like you just discovered, right? Let's say your parents told you that, that you have a brother that they gave away at birth that you never met. Wouldn't you want to find that brother? Right? We all have this poll towards family, and, and so being a part of the church and being part of the community is instinctive because they are my family. I want to know these wonderful people that God has knitted me to through the Holy Spirit. But there might be another category here. There's another group of people who is not ignorance. it's not because they're not part of the family, it's because they keep the church at, at arm's length. Keep the church at arm's length. I don't know about this church. Church is something that you go to because you should. It's good for you. It gives you a rush. But you don't really want to be all in. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. Number one, you just don't want accountability. You love the fact that This church takes care of people who are suffering and hurting and struggling with sickness and the curse. You love that part, but you don't like the part where this church might call you out on your sin. I remember talking to a man who went through a membership process, and I kind of explained this concept of of spiritual accountability, And, and he informed me later on that he did not want to join the church because it would violate his constitutional rights. I mean, what do you say to that? Now, I found out later uh, that this man actively abused his son. Of course he didn't want accountability. You know, the sociologists have begun to realize that just because somebody calls them an ev- themselves an evangelical doesn't mean that they fit into a certain sociological group. In fact, they... They now divide evangelicals into two camps, those who attend church faithfully and those who don't. And this is something that they discovered. Men or husbands with the highest rate of domestic abuse are those husbands who don't go to church and claim to be evangelical. The worst husbands are evangelical men who don't go to church. They have the highest rates of abuse. The best husbands and the ones least likely to commit domestic violence are evangelical men who go to church regularly. Isn't that interesting? Because those men understand that I'm a man under authority, they place themselves under authority, they have embraced the household of God. Thirdly, you may not want to lose your freedom. Anytime you commit to Sunday morning, you decommit from other things, don't you? Easy to do in the wintertime, right? Do you really want to be outside right now? But when there's rival activities, you can kind of feel like, ah, oh, I've got to go to church. And then you sign up and you realize, oh, they're going to want me to you know, help with this or help with this. Then there's even the burdens that you feel for other people. Right? It does restrict your freedom. But that's part of being a part of a family, right? To be part of the family means you surrender your freedom. And frankly, this is something that Jesus did, didn't he? He surrendered his freedom. And someday we're all going to face Jesus and the one who surrendered his freedom. And what will you say, right? Don't, Don't tell yourself, I would die for Christ while at the same time refusing to be inconvenienced by the church, his bride. Right? Don't tell yourself you'd die for Christ when you won't be inconvenienced by his bride. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then in 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this involves building up the church. Sometimes when people hold to their freedom, they lose the blessing of fulfilling the plan of God for their lives. Fourthly, and I think this is probably the most prevalent, is I don't want to be hurt. I was part of a church before and I was hurt. There are some pastors who have wounded sheep. They have used their spiritual authority to take advantage of, oppress, and I'll say even abuse those in their care, Right? And there is a special pain when someone who represents God to you mars that image through unrighteous, sinful, evil, wicked behavior. That does happen. And, And all I can say is, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I don't believe that's true of this church. That's one response. Two, while there are real tales of church hurt, Sometimes they can be exaggerated. Because when somebody leaves the church, there is a tendency to want to justify yourself. And to justify yourself, there is a tendency to exaggerate the sins of others and minimize your own sin. This church wasn't friendly towards me. Really? Were you friendly towards them? What do you mean? Did you ever talk to people? No. I can see by your body language you fold your arms all the time and have this rusting face that's less than inviting. And you're only giving me one word answers and you always seem to criticize things. Why do you think people were unfriendly towards you? Right? Thirdly, being part of a church means sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes your feelings get hurt. I hurt Joshua Smith's feelings all the time. In fact, I'm probably hurting his feelings right now. (laughs) But you know what? Isn't part of friendship and toughening those relationships, learning how to get over those? When you get close to someone, your feelings will get hurt. But that's part of God's plan to sanctify you as well as them. God wants you to be part of the family. So how do you do it? How can you be part of the family? First of all, I'd say become a member. That means you make the formal commitment, and you tell the elders, and you tell this church, this is my spiritual family. And we have a process. We have a membership class. We do interviews and stuff like that because we want to make sure you're part of the universal church. We want to make sure that you understand what we're about and what we practice. But when you make that formal commitment, you're basically saying, this is my family. I'm no longer a guest. I am part of this church. Some of you have been waiting for a long time. Maybe today's the day. Fill out the application, pursue it. Secondly is be present. When the doors are open, show up. Oh, there's Sunday school? I'm going to go. Oh, is there a Bible study? Sign me up. Oh, can I help out with this? Let me do it. Just just show up. Thirdly is be known. Let people know you. If you're having surgery, let the people at the church know. We'd love to minister to you don't be afraid of people ministering to your needs see often we don't want to let people know our needs because they might minister to us which might obligate us to minister to them right there's this reciprocal relationship that's really based off of works instead of grace let other people love you and trust other people to help you with the areas where you need the most help if you're struggling with pornography don't keep it to yourself Talk to someone who wants to help you. Allow yourself to be known. Don't hold the church at arm's length. Fourthly, integrate your life. Being a part of the church family doesn't mean that you can't do other things on the weekend. It doesn't mean you have to stop working, stop playing disc golf, stop bike riding, stop going to school, or whatever it is, right? But I will say is, you don't want to have two worlds that never intersect. Like let's say a a husband is part of a bowling league and he makes sure that his wife never goes bowling with him and that his bowling friends never meet his wife. Why do you think he's doing that? Either he's ashamed of his wife or he's ashamed of his friends. You see what I'm saying? You don't keep two separate worlds. If you're part of a rec basketball league, just say, hey, do you play basketball? Hey, let's go together. Why don't you join me, right? You want to introduce your world to this other world. Invite that other world to this world. Seek to integrate them. Bring them together. Fifth, integrate your family. Blur the lines between your family and the family of God. There's a lot of ink that's spilled with pastors about what do you do with your kids. And so many pastors pursue ministry to the neglect of their kids. And it's almost like ministry in the church is over here and family is over here, and you have to divide your time between the two. Now, in the Hintz household, we look at it as a family business. When there was a membership class and we offered childcare, we told our children <laughs> guess what you're doing this weekend? And they were good sports about it. They were really good about it, as many of you young kids know. But do you saying? It's like the church is the family business. This is a church that provides for us, that serves us, and it is a privilege to serve them. They're not taking daddy away. They are ministering to your lives. And this even happens when we look at how this church community interacts with your children. Nate, our youth pastor, and I were talking about how the children you seem to do the best that come out of our youth group are those whose parents invite the input of the youth staff. Whereas those who push away the input of the youth staff really struggle. For instance, let's say a high school kid named Johnny goes to his father after a weekend retreat and says, Dad, Pastor Nate was really mean to me. He asked me if I looked up porn and I told him no. And then he asked to see my cell phone so that he could look at my internet history. Dad, he called me a liar. Well, you know what? No, no stupid, young, whippersnapper. You pastor is going to call my son a liar. Now, what did he just do? Johnny, never trust a youth pastor. Never trust the church. Son, we're going to stand together against the church and against all those people who are mean to you. Well, what do you think is going to happen to Johnny when he gets older? He's going to learn not to trust the church. Now, let's say the same situation. Pastor Nate was mean to me. He asked me if I looked up porn. I said no. And he asked to see my cell phone to unlock it. And, uh, and he called me a liar. Son, give me your cell phone. We're going to go to Pastor Nate right now. We're going to sit down with Pastor Nate. You will unlock the cell phone in front of both of us, and we're going to look at this history together. I love you, son. But porn, I love you so much, I do not want to see porn be a factor in your life. And Pastor Nate had the courage to ask you about it, and I'm grateful for it. Now, what's going to happen to him? How is he going to see the church? Do you see the difference? I thank God for the men and women who have called out my children. I've offered to hold my children down as they whip them. Because this church is standing with me against my children's sin. And I'm thankful for it. Six, solve conflict biblically. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And this is challenging because when you have conflict and you have a falling out, what's the easiest thing to do? Is to run. Staying means you have to have these awkward, difficult conversations. Staying means that you might have to admit your wrongdoing. Staying means that you'll have to go through the pain of offering forgiveness, promising forgiveness, and constantly giving forgiveness. Sometimes when you leave, that work of God that he meant to do is short-circuited when you just run. Resolve to solve and resolve conflict biblically. See, God's plan for your life is, is not that you just have a personal relationship with God, that you see yourself as part of a spiritual family. And so often when, when Satan attacks churches like ours, he doesn't necessarily go after doctrine, right? He goes after family relationships. He tries to pit the family against each other, and he wants us to be a family feud and in an election year, this is kind of a postscript to this sermon, there's extra fuel for having a family feud, right? Some of you are very excited about the presumptive candidate. Some of you are not very excited about him. Some of you will vote for him with eagerness. Some of you won't vote for him with eagerness. Some of you just won't vote for him. And there can be a lot of tension that develops but remember that the church is family you remember that politicians come and go right politics they come and go what remains is the brother and sister relationships that we share in this room and these other things are not worth sacrificing this kind of relationship does that make sense family will come and go but you know what this church family is going to remain a family in heaven Because the spirit that connects us with each other and connects us to the Lord still connects us with each other all the way into heaven. When you have the Holy Spirit that bonds you with other people, that never leaves. We are family, like it or not. And God wants you to like it. And not just like it, but to love it. And to see yourself and to see other people as your spiritual family So Sunday morning is not so much a time to hear an awesome sermon. But it's a chance to be with your people and to be with the household of God. That's what God wants for you in this church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for family. And Father, while we know that there is a, it is good to honor our parents, it is good to honor our family, and that still remains. We also pray that you'll help us to see with spiritual eyes our spiritual family, and to prioritize them, to love them, and understand the deep bonds that connect us. And as we sing this song to you, as worship to you, may we not just see it as individuals, but as a family, as a group of people who've been born again, and baptized by the Spirit, who stand shoulder to shoulder as brothers and sisters, as children of the King, with Jesus as our brother. Help us to be family in Christ's name. Amen.